Okay, I think I am now on. I'm so sorry about that. So we're going to actually do that one more time so everybody can hear it. He is risen. Absolutely, absolutely. Welcome, family. Um, and also for those that are online, we thank you for watching and thank you for joining us. We'd love to see you soon. Um, for those that aren't able to join us, um, please. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It makes my life a little bit easier. Um, so anyways, I thank you all for being here. It is a blessed Easter. And um, we have not very many announcements, fortunately, for you guys. Um, this next Friday, we do have a women's conference that's coming up at the Federal Way campus at Northwest, and we would love to see you there if you're able or want to come. It starts at 6.30 on Friday, and then it also resumes on Saturday. So you can find out where to log in and, and sign up on our website at the NWC edgewood.org or um, I'm not sure how else other than you probably could call the church. Um, anyways, so that's this Friday. The following two weeks, actually, the 17th, we have a special pre-summer demolition work party. So depending upon what your deal is, if you like demo, that is a good time to come. If you like to just work, you can come, or you just want to come for the party, then you can come for that as well. So anyways, we would love to have you, and that's from 8 to 2 on the 17th. Then in the summer, of course, we're going to be doing in July our work summer work mission here, and it's to help renovate um, the areas up above and some other issues that we have here. Um, so with that... There was something I was reading this morning, and I just thought it was just, um, it was just an important thing to share. So will you step into the tomb with us for a moment? Jesus is lying down, wrapped in burial clothes. He's motionless until he isn't. All of a sudden, breath fills his lungs, and the creator in human form breathes out eternal life. His eyes blink open, and hope appears. He sits up, and death takes its place beneath his feet. Today, Jonathan is going to be speaking about hope. And I think during this season of what we've been through in the last year and where our lives are going, that we need that hope. And First um, Corinthians 15, is he's going to speak about that. So come and join us um, to welcome Jonathan. Thank you, Darlene. Welcome to church on Resurrection Sunday. I can remember my password. Here we go. Nailed it. All right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, this is our first Easter together at Edgewood. Northwest Church Edgewood, and this is exciting stuff. This is really exciting. Um, heading into this, I, I confess, I, have no, I had no idea what to expect, right? You just don't know until you've been there before, and, and even over Advent um, and Christmas time, it just everything's a first right now, and we're seeing this, and I, and I have to wonder um, what the disciples felt and what the followers of Jesus felt as everything was a first, 
Like we get to read it over and over and, and talk about this, but everything was a first for them, kind of like it is for us right now as we follow him in this new adventure. Go ahead and get your Bibles ready. If you have a, a paper Bible or if you got your phone or a device, open up to 1 Corinthians 15. The title of today's message is The Hope of the Resurrection. As you're doing that, I will pray. Lord, we ask that you would anoint the reading and the study of your word today. You said that that you will confirm the preaching of the gospel with power and with your presence. And so, Lord, that's what we're asking for today. We want to know what your word says and respond appropriately to that. Come fill this time and touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. As you may know, we call this the Passion Week. This is the end of the Passion Week, or in some traditions, it's called Holy Week. Passion Week commemorates the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and then his resurrection. It begins on Palm Sunday, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, clearly stating for anybody paying attention that I am the Messiah and I am here. There was no questioning. There was no, there was no uh, well, maybe he meant this, maybe he meant that. He was fulfilling prophecy in very specific ways. And anybody who knew their Torah or their scripture knew that, that he was saying this. He was the Christ. He was God's Messiah. There's various ministry things that happen throughout the week. Thursday evening is the Last Supper, the last time with his uh, disciples celebrating the Passover. And then, and then, um, about midnight that night is when he is arrested and betrayed by Judas and brought to the high priest in the Sanhedrin. And he goes through this mockery of a trial. He's falsely accused. He's beaten and then formally condemned. About 6 a.m. on Friday morning, he appears before Pontius Pilate for the second time. He's been, he's been around the circuit overnight, trial after trial, authority after authority, trying to figure out what they're going to do to this guy, how they're going to handle this. And Pilate at about 6 a.m. says, okay, all right, all right, you can, you can crucify him. So he was crucified by 9 a.m. and was on the cross for six hours before he breathed his last and uttered, it is finished at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. When he died, the, the veil in the temple very, very thick woven material was torn and, and really high, was torn from the top to the bottom. A human impossibility was torn as, as the way was made into the Holy of Holies. And Jesus said, it is finished. Saturday was quiet. It was Sabbath. Imagine what the disciples and the, the followers of Jesus must have felt. Locked away, fearful, worried, confused. The one who just said six days ago he was Messiah is now dead. What's going on? That doesn't make any sense. Disillusioned. And then Sunday. Sunday is where everything changed because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ released hope 
in the world, hope on this earth, and becomes the focus of our message, not just today, but every day. This is the focus of our message. For the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus is our reality. It's not just a historical fact, although it is a historical fact, just as much as the Declaration of Independence is a historical document, just as much as uh, landing on the moon was a historical... Don't get me going on conspiracy theories. (laughs) It's a historical fact. So is the resurrection of Christ. It actually happened. When we live in the reality of this resurrection, our life has purpose. Our life has hope. Our life has meaning. So we come to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read. I'm going to take it up to 26, 1 through 26. Are you ready? Read along. I'm reading the NASB. So if yours doesn't match quite with that, just hang in there. We'll get there. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We're going to get to the vain part here in a second. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Obviously, the writing of 1 Corinthians, not now, now. Okay. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. We got the original Popeye right here. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, and he has been raised, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished also. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, and for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and after that, those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he stands over the king, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Paul is the apostle writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He's writing to believers that he's known well over the years. It might have been four or five years since he had last been with them, but he spent over a year and a half with them, getting this church going in Corinth. And he's been hearing negative reports of the things going on at Corinth. He's been hearing some crazy stuff about the way they do church. He's been hearing some, some reports about bad behavior amongst them. And so he writes a letter to them, correcting them, and giving some guidance on how things ought to be done. In this chapter in the letter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with some false teaching and some error and some misunderstandings that, that he's heard that they've got going on in Corinth. He's heard that some of the Christians, some of the believers in Corinth began to question our resurrection, the believer's resurrection in Christ. So, he takes this whole chapter. We just read the first half. There's, there's more. He keeps going. He makes a case for the resurrection of the dead. So he sets forth this case for the reality of not just Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection in Christ. So knowing this, let's make some observations of this passage. The first thing that Paul does at the, at the top of this passage is he refreshes our memory of the gospel. What is the gospel? Remember that thing that you believe, that you put your faith in. He clarifies it in verse 1 through 4. And there were many in Paul's day that sought to dilute the gospel or to change it to better fit the times that they were in or the culture that they were in. We're talking about Greece. We're talking about ancient Greece and all the traditions. My daughters, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, my daughters um, have been studying in school um, ancient Greece and some of the traditions, some of the, the religious lore and, and things going on there, <laughs> and listening to a couple audio books that uh, are, are set around that time. And, and there's some crazy stories with the Greek gods and the demigods and, and all that. And so a gospel like this comes in that says, says, there's resurrection for the dead in Christ, and they're just trying to reconcile that with what they already know and what they already, their traditions. And their tradition would say that, oh, sure, a demigod could be raised to immortality with his body, but not everybody else. The, the regular people, we're just going to be disembodied souls, spirits, and, and so that's in direct conflict with the gospel. So they want to make it a little easier, a little bit, a little bit easier to talk to people about this. They don't want to be as crazy as saying that your body is going to be resurrected. We have no idea what that's like today, do we? There, were many, there are many today who would change or dilute or water down the gospel to be more palatable 
in today's culture. Why? Because it's offensive to our sensibilities. You're telling me, one, I'm not perfect, and, and two, I need Jesus to, to cover my imperfections, and then three, I got to give my life to him, and I got to do things his way. That is offensive to me, and so we should water down the gospel, right? There are many who would do that, but Paul says, no, 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 no. Here's the gospel. Here's where we're at. This is the truth. This is the reality. Number one, Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice for all who would believe and who would turn to him. And without his sacrifice, we are dead in our sin. This forces the acknowledgement of, of sin. He didn't just come as an option. He came because you needed the option. You had no option. He came to forgive sins and sin. The difference being sins, I would call sins an action. The wrong things you've done, the wrong thoughts, okay? But sin is a condition that you're born into. And it doesn't matter how good you've been. If you've never messed up, you are born into sin. That's the way you think. That's, that's why you're willful. That's why you want to be right. That's why you don't want to give your life to Jesus to make him the Lord and let him tell you what to do. That condition is called sin. Jesus died for that. And he died to forgive sins and sin. Without his sacrifice, we are still dead in our sin. The first part of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. The second part is he was buried. This lends itself to the historical fact. He died and was buried. There was a place where he was buried. They wrapped him. It was a couple guys doing it, and it was late, and they had to finish by dark because Sabbath was coming, and so they probably did a crummy job, right? And that's why the women were coming on on Sunday to, to fix it. We have, <laughs> I live this. Like I, I, my wife covers so many things for me. Um, he was buried. And then the third part of this is he rose from the dead on the third day. Just as scripture said, and just as Jesus himself predicted, he said, You destroy this temple, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. When the religious leaders demanded a sign, he said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And on the third day, I'll rise. So he did rise. And this was the father ratifying his sacrifice and validating the payment that Jesus had just made on our behalf. It would not have done any good if he had just died and stayed dead. But when he rose, when the father rose, he was making a statement. He was putting a stamp on the invoice that said, paid in full. Because Jesus was sinless and righteous, death had no hold on him. And the father said, you don't belong there. You don't belong dead. Here we go. You're back to life. Jesus is alive. He is alive. He, he raised Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead sometime before. But Lazarus died again. He was a man. 
just a flesh and bone man. He was not the Messiah, and he died again later. Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first one to do this, the first kind of a new kind of humans, the kind that we were always intended to be. He's alive forevermore with a new body. The next thing that Paul says is he goes into a list of the proof. He he takes you through an argument, a proof of the resurrection. Not only did he clarify the gospel message, hey, remember, remember what we believe. This is what we believe. This is where our salvation is. He clarified the evidence surrounding the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Sometimes you just need to hear it again. Amen. First thing he says is transformed lives. Verse one, he states that the gospel is what you received, took a stand, and you were saved. The gospel promises new life now and then. Second Corinthians five seventeen. He says this in a second letter to the same group. You guys know this verse just by reference. If anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Now and then. The gospel promises new life. Is there anyone here who could testify and say that you were one way before Christ and now after Christ you are a different way? He has changed you. He is changing you. Not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. I can testify of that in my life. It's an ongoing thing. Jesus is, is constantly changing me. I, I can recall times when he has uh, led me and helped me make decisions to give my life to him and, th- and then filled me with power to witness. He has done these things in my life, and I know he has in yours. How, and that's how I know personally that Jesus is alive. We can talk about a historical fact. We can talk about that. But, but if he's with me now, if I hear him now, if he changes me now, that's more proof than, than whatever arguments we could lay out. The second thing is the word of God. Paul says it a couple times, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. He's using the Old Testament to back up what Jesus did and said, this is, this is what we've believed all along and now it has happened. He uses that. In Acts 1.3, Luke writes that Jesus presented himself to the disciples with many convincing proofs. How do you, what do you think he was saying? I mean, besides just eating in front of them. <laughs> hey, look, I can eat. <laughs> it doesn't fall out. <laughs> I'm not a ghost. I'm the real deal. Scripture says in, um, in Luke 24, um, the day that he was raised after he had appeared to the women, he, he appeared to two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, which is a little ways away from Jerusalem. And they told him, he, they didn't know who he was, and, and he asked them, hey, what's going on? How you doing? They're like, Where, have you been hiding under a rock? Do you know nothing of what's happening around here? And, and they tell him the story. They tell him how Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, and, and, but now he's crucified. And, and then it says this. Then he opened their minds. He, 
Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The scriptures for them was, was the prophets and the law and the, and the books of history, the Old Testament. It was proof and, and used to validate Jesus' resurrection. The third thing is the empty tomb itself. The rulers of that time, the Sanhedrin, they had heard Jesus say that this is the sign I will give you that on the third day I'll rise. They heard him say that. And they didn't know necessarily what that meant, but they weren't about to let any shenanigans go on. So they asked Pilate, and Pilate said, okay, I'll give you a a Roman guard to to be in front of that tomb. So nobody's going to mess with it. Nobody's getting in or out. Uh, They put a Roman seal on there, which which lends it extra authority. If you mess with the Roman seal, you mess with Rome, and you end up on a cross. So nobody's inclined to play games right now. So they knew that this was going to happen. John chapter 20, we're told those who actually witnessed the empty tomb. There were people who went to the tomb that, that Sunday morning. We saw the women go and they saw the empty tomb. They saw the angels. And then Peter and John, there's the story of Peter and John running to the tomb. And, and looking and seeing the grave clothes folded on the place where his body should have been. They saw the stone rolled away, which was itself impossible. They saw, I'm, what, what did they think when they saw the Roman seal messed up? They're like, I ain't sticking around here. I'm going to get in trouble. I did not do that. I did not do that. The empty tomb was a proof of Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, the eyewitnesses. In verse 5 through 8, Paul lists all who literally saw the resurrected Christ, and testified openly about it. The first was Cephas or Peter, and then the rest of the disciples and apostles, even a crowd of up to 500 at one time. And Paul says that that many of them are still alive, although it's been a few years. Some of them have probably passed on. But there's still the, the idea is there's eyewitnesses. We're not making something up. And, and what is he doing? What happens when a, a jury is in court? They will make a verdict It will make a decision based on clear evidence and compelling eyewitness testimony. Paul is laying it out there. He says, here's the evidence. Here are the eyewitnesses. These are people you know and have heard of. The jury will make a decision based on the evidence. Paul's laid it out there. He strategically then calls out those people in the Corinthian church who have said there's no resurrection of the dead in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Saying, it is foolishness to think this way. It is foolishness to say that Christ was risen and we will not rise because of the things that Christ said. From verse 12, Paul talks about the damnation of people who do not believe in the resurrection. And then he shares the hope that we have because of the resurrection. If you deny the resurrection, the implications are frightening. If you believe the resurrection, then the hope you have is amazing. So we have hope in the resurrection. What is the hope 
of that resurrection? Why would it be important that Paul make a case for this? In verse 13 and 18, Paul makes it clear that Jesus didn't rise, that if Jesus didn't rise, then neither will those who believe. If Jesus didn't rise, then his promises towards us are false. I know that's not one that you want to say amen to, but it's the truth. If he didn't rise, then nothing he said holds any weight. Because he said he was going to rise. And if he said he was going to rise and he didn't, then the things that he says don't hold weight. It's not true. Or you can't trust it. If he didn't rise, his promises are false. And one of the things that he promised us was eternal life with the Father. So that would be false also. We would have no hope of that. In verse 20, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits or the first one of a new kind, meaning that those who are in Christ, those who believe in Christ, will also follow him in resurrection. I like the way that the New Living Translation says it in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. John eleven twenty five, Jesus visiting the sisters just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection, the life. And the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 3, John 6, John 10 and 17, and practically every New Testament book says that the believers have eternal life in Christ. We know that his promises are true because he rose from the dead. There is life after death for you and all who believe in Christ. Amen. Amen. We can believe what he said. The resurrection brings hope in that it brings life through our ministry, our ministry. Now, I know you're going, hold on, I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Well, well, pastor, you're supposed to be the one that, that ministers. No, 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 no. My job is to equip you to minister. My job is to help you know the word and you have faith and you know how to communicate to the people around you. That's my job. You do the ministry. The resurrection brings life through our ministry. Paul says in verse 14 that if Christ has not raised, then our preaching, our ministry, is useless. Man, that would stink. No resurrection, no good news. You got nothing to say if there's no resurrection. There's no message of salvation. There's no message of grace, no hope. There's no savior because all of his claims would then be false. They would be lies. Preaching would be useless. And by preaching, let's just expand that a little bit. What I'm doing now, we would call this preaching, right? But when you are preaching to somebody, when you're explaining the gospel, when you're giving a message of hope, it doesn't necessarily have to be with a microphone in front of a bunch of people. It can be with the guy changing your oil at Jiffy Lube. And I hope you don't have a mic at Jiffy Lube because that would be messed up. But since he did rise from the dead, there is transformation power and hope in our preaching, in our conveying of the gospel. 
We, you and I, have a message that can literally change the eternal condition of someone's life. You have been changed. Other people need to be changed also. We need to be in Christ. This is what we were made for. This is how we're designed. Resurrection also fuels our faith and gives us hope that way. In verse 17, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile or worthless. It's not even worth believing. Because of the resurrection, we know we have eternal life. We also know that everything else that the word of God says is true. And everything else that Jesus said is true. He saves us. He changes us. He heals us, delivers us. He restores us. How do we know? Because he said it. And then he rose from the dead to back it up. We don't need pep talks. We don't need feel-good experiences. We don't need a stimulus package from the government to be okay. We have hope because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus is alive, which means his words can be trusted. I feel like I've said this a few times. Are we getting it? Yeah. There are many religions in the world. There are many religious leaders in the world that been around for a long time. We have all the, the big religions, and they all say different things, and they all have different approaches to life. But all of these leaders have one thing in common. They're all dead. They're dead. You can visit their tombs. They're dead. You can't, you can't talk to them. They were not raised to life. Their words can be studied or debated or shared or, you know, the followers can proselytize, but the words of Jesus can be trusted. They can be trusted at face value because he has backed it up with his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that what he said is true. He said that he is the way, he is the truth, that we can be forgiven of our sin, that we can have eternal life as we believe on his name. Come on, we know this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said that. Everything he said is true. We are the sons and daughters of God, if we're in Christ. Imagine, I don't think we're used to completely trusting things nowadays, are we? We're used to politicians. And you already know that as soon as they open their mouth, 90% of what they say is not believable. You, I mean, we just, we're conditioned. We, we just think that way. We're like, oh, okay, all right, you know. And we don't even write somebody off for that. That's just a regular politician. We might even still vote for the guy. Or gal. We're not used to complete honesty and complete reliability. There might be a kernel of truth and we kind of dig for it and, and, and see what's going on. But Jesus never changes. What happens when a politician says something and then their feet get held to the fire a year later? Uh, they change the story. They say something else. They spin it off. They, they do something else. I realize that, that I just... I'm just going to leave that alone. <laughs> Politics is hard. 
And there's a reason I'm not a politician. I couldn't do it. Jesus never changes. He simply proves what he said is truth. He simply backed it up. He never had to change. He never had to backtrack. He never had to say, oh, most of that was true, but maybe not this. I was misinformed on this. I was working on the information I had. Jesus doesn't change. The resurrection validates our witness. In verse 15, Paul states that if Christ didn't rise, then we are, in fact, false witnesses. Our testimony, even, is a lie if Christ was not risen from the dead. Jesus told his disciples, he told his disciples to go into the world. He told them to preach the gospel to all creation. He told them to make disciples and to teach everything that he had commanded. He told them to baptize people. How would that work if he didn't rise from the dead? In fact, he told them that after he rose from the dead. So they had no trouble doing that. They were like, yes, sir, yes, sir. We will do that. There was, no, there was no question of the power to back up what he was telling them to do because they were talking to the risen Lord face to face. We are saved by his grace and filled with his spirit and sent as witnesses by his commission. This is who we are and what he's given us to do. And we can do it with confidence because we know that his power will back us up because he said it would. And everything he said is true. We can be bold witnesses of his sacrifice, his resurrection, and the fact that he's coming again. We don't have a dead Jesus, and we shouldn't be a dead church. How weird would that be to have a living head and a dead body? We are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the living witness of Jesus Christ in the earth, and we have him to back it up. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. The resurrection breaks the power of sin. In verse 17, again, Paul clearly says that, that Christ, if Christ did not rise, then you are still in your sins. There's a whole lot of things that go wrong if he didn't rise. We keep coming back to this. You are still in your sins. If he's not alive, then you are not forgiven. And sin is still a problem. There is no newness of life now or then. However, because he did rise, we who believe have forgiveness through him. And the Bible goes on to tell us multiple times that he not only forgives sin, but he cleanses us from unrighteousness. He cleanses us and he delivers us from evil. This is the ongoing work of Christ in our lives. We are free. We are forgiven and growing in. There are millions and millions of people who follow Jesus and there are millions more who have followed him and have died in that faith. With the confidence that Jesus is alive and they also would rise from the dead and be with him forever according to scriptures. Do you believe in Jesus? Is this where your faith is? Have you surrendered your life to him and received forgiveness and new life? Is that where you're at? If you haven't, you can do it right now. 
That's why, that's why we're here today is to share this message, to share the gospel, to share the power of a risen Christ. I'd like to just take a moment. For those of us here, for those joining us online, I would say probably most of us have given our lives to Christ. But I would be mistaken to move through an Easter Sunday and not give an opportunity for someone to offer their life to Jesus. You have heard clearly presented today the gospel that you were dead in your sins and Jesus paid the price for those sins and for your condition. You have heard that clearly said, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead to back up all of his promises, to back up his claims and his ability to save you. And now, having heard the gospel, it's up to our hearts to respond. How do we respond to this when it's presented to us? Are we going to move on, pass by, say it's a nice story, fits right in with the Greek mythology? Or will we respond to a risen Savior? I'm going to just pray and I'd like you to join me in this. Not, don't repeat after me, but just join me in your heart. Jesus, I, I hear your gospel and I hear your message. I see what you have done. I see how you have come for me to save me. You've given your everything and sacrificed your life for me to pay for my sin, my rebellion, my willfulness, my independence. You have done that. But you didn't stay dead. Your word says that you rose again from the grave in power. And this was the father's stamp that, that in fact, your work removed sin from between us. Sin can no longer keep us or keep me from the father. Your work was well done and it was finished. It was completed. Lord, I see that today and, and I, I look at the gospel and I say, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he gave his life for me and I believe that he rose again on the third day and I believe that he's coming again. I believe that he's with me now. And so, Lord, we give our lives to you. We don't just mentally ascend. We don't just approve of the idea of a historical fact. But we, in fact, give our lives to you. You gave your life for us. And now in return, we give our life to you. For those of you who have trusted in Christ and given him your life, let me remind you that your faith in him and his resurrection means that this life is not all there is. And he wants to give you fresh encouragement today. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive.
We're going to take communion this morning. You have a, a cup on your seat. If you are watching at home, I should have warned you earlier. I'm sorry, but run for the fridge. Get your stuff. We're going to take communion together. Back up a few days to Thursday and the Last Supper with the disciples. And Jesus instituted this practice. He said, as he said, do this and, and remember me. He held up the bread and said, this is my body given for you. This is the body, it, it, this is the symbol of his body that, that bore the weight of our sin, that took the punishment for our sin, that was due you, and it was due to me. This symbolizes his body which bore our punishment. Lord, we, we receive together the body of Christ and we remember what you have done for us. Go ahead and take the bread. And after they had finished eating, he, he took the cup and he held up a cup. It was wine. This is juice. You'll, you'll be okay. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant that Jesus made for us when he cleansed us of our sins, when he, forgave, when he offered the forgiveness of sins, that we could be close to God again. That we didn't have to rely on the sacrifice of animals or rituals or anything else. So we could be close to God by the blood of Christ. This has made a way. He poured it out for us. And he said, remember, take it often. Remember me. Today, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And we drink the cup. The end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, says this. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much that you have been here with us today. The risen Christ.
You have filled and inhabited our praises. You have touched our hearts and spoken spoken to us through your word. Stick this with us, the hope of your resurrection. Cause it to resonate in our minds and in our hearts, the hope that we have because of your resurrection. And remember that we too will rise. Thank you, Jesus, for being alive. 